Hello, Freight community. I'm Andrew Silver, CEO of Molo Solutions, joined with Lee Sales, best-selling author of Sales Differentiation. Happy to have you here today, Lee. And uh, I guess I'll start by just asking you a simple question. You know, I read your book, and I've read a number of sales books. What what makes you qualified to be uh, the the speaker on sales differentiation? Oh, Andrew, I thought you were going to give me a tough question. This is an easy one. I'm the best sales consultant in the world. You heard me right. I'm the best sales consultant in the world. Now, if you're watching this, don't you allow me to explain. How many of you go on sales calls selling your services saying that you're the best freight company in this space? You all do. And why do you do it? Because you think you're endearing yourselves to others. The reality, you're getting an eye roll. It's like, Andrew, oh, you've got to be kidding me, right? And why is that an issue? Because we can't prove it. I can't prove to you that I'm the best sales consultant in the world. And you probably can't prove that you're the best freight company. So why go there? All you do is tarnish the relationship unnecessarily right in the first few moments. That eye roll that you saw Andrew give me, that's what your buyers are doing every time you use that word best. Okay, fair. You know, I think, does that probably apply to more terms than just best, right? You know, I think... As I was reading your book, I found myself pinching myself a little bit or, or, or kind of smacking myself just like, man, I feel like I've done some of these things he's telling me not to do. You know, one of them is like talking about being the fastest growing or one of the fastest growings. And, and I think what I'm learning from reading your book is it's all about qualifying what you state. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like, you know, if you say you're the biggest or you say that you're one of the fastest growing, like, how do you how do you use that information in a way that actually endears to your potential customer rather than turning them off? Sure. So uh, I ask salespeople all the time: Is being the biggest a blessing or a curse? And both, I'll right? get two camps, right? Some will say, "Oh, it's it's definitely a blessing." Others say, "It's a curse." And the answer is, it's how the salesperson positions it. See, I'm asked all the time: What's the biggest mistake? salespeople make when it comes to trying to differentiate themselves. A number one mistake is tossing out differentiators and leaving it to the person on the other side of the desk to decide why it matters and what it means. So we say, we're the biggest. And someone's got to decide, well, why is that? Why do I care about that? Why does that matter? We're uh, privately held. We're publicly traded. We just toss them out and we leave it to that other side of the desk to figure it out. And if you do that, one of two really bad things happen. Sometimes you get both of them. They either never figure it out or they give it a meaning that's not going to help your sale. So one of the keys when you have a differentiator is to give it context, give it meaning. Don't let them try to figure out what it means. You've got to help them see the value in it. That makes sense. Now, you know, let me give you a lay of the land for our industry. It's in, it's insanely competitive. I mean, I think the number thrown around is 18,000 brokers. It doesn't really matter when it's that many. And, you know, th there's somewhat of a negative connotation associated with brokers. It, it, it's hard to differentiate. I think a lot of brokers are, are very similar in what we're doing to the point where shippers, you know, as the potential customer, they get emails from 30, 40, 50 in a day. Um, I guess some, some advice to give to to the freight brokers of the world, what can they be doing to get that, that shipper's attention or that customer's attention in their initial outreaches? Any suggestions there? Yeah, so, so there's a couple of things. One is, as I talk about in my book, 
there's two sides to the sales differentiation equation. There's differentiating what you sell, and there's also differentiating how you sell. And it's not just in your industry, it's in all industries today. The differences in, in product features and functions is getting smaller and smaller, narrower and narrower. And again, when you talk about it in the services side, it's, it's so slim that it's sometimes hard in a meaningful way to, to differentiate what you sell. But if you look at the how you sell side and challenge yourself with this question, what is it that I can do different than my competitors that my buyers will find meaningful? So it's not different for the sake of different. It's looking at every interaction, every touch point, and asking yourself, what can I do different than my competitors that my buyers will find meaningful? And if you look at those aspects and you say, boy, how can I make them feel special? In every touch point, you're going to stand out from your competitors. I'll share a little story for the audience. My voice is not exactly 100%. As a matter of fact, we were supposed to do this interview last week. Uh, my son, Steven's a sophomore at Augsburg University and hit his first home run of the year, a three-run home run on Thursday, and we were all excited and, and yelling. But what was interesting was when he went through the recruiting process. Now, if you've ever gone through a college recruiting process, you know it's a sale. These coaches are trying to sell you on their institution. But they can't differentiate what they sell. They can't add a major. They can't create a meal plan. They can't move a dorm. It just is. All fixed assets. The sole set of tools that they have to work with is differentiating how you sell. And some of them were terrific at it, and some failed miserably. Now, you know when you visit a college campus, as soon as you cross onto the campus, your blood pressure jumps about 30 points. Andrew, have you ever had that experience? Sure. You know why your blood pressure jumps like that? Can't find a place to park. Every single parking lot says, park here, we're going to tow you, but welcome to our fine institution. Well, this one university we visited, we pull into the lot and there's a spot with Stephen's name on it. Stopped us dead in our tracks. Then we go inside. There's an agenda for the day with Stephen's name printed at the top. What did it cost this university to do these two things? A penny, right? Maybe for the paper and the ink. But think about what they did. They made us feel like Stephen was the only athlete they were recruiting for any sport anywhere in the world. Now, that wasn't the case, obviously, but that's how they made us feel. They made us feel special. And in sales, we forget that. We get so busy, it's just another client. It's another prospect. And one of the things that I, I'll tell you, my own consultancy that I pride myself on doing, and it differentiates me, I make every client feel like they are my only one. And that's an opportunity you have as well. It's not another call. It's not another prospect. It's not another client. Make each one of them feel special. And all of a sudden, you differentiate yourself from the pack. You know, to take it a step further, it's less to me about making them feel special and more about like actually the experience. They need to be special. If you truly want to be different. So there's this negative connotation with sales in general that it's not a it's it's not genuine. Right. You know, people don't want it. Like I was a little apprehensive coming on here because I'm like, OK, if I talk about how I sell the customers, are people going to think I'm 
I'm not genuine and that the, the way that I go about trying to procure new customers is not genuine and that it's not special to them. I think that at the end of the day, you just need to commit yourself to building your business in a way that that treats the customer special if you want that to be the experience they have, right? So for me, um, in my experience at least, you know, I'm the CEO of our business and, and I'm fairly busy, but I think that the customer is most important. So I tend to go out of my way to give all of our customers or the ones that I interact with my cell phone number. And I say, hey, at any point in time, if for some reason we're not doing the things we told you we would, you can call me and and I will help make sure that things get resolved. I think that's important. You know, one of the parts I found interesting about your book and and I felt like maybe we're not coaching as well as we should be because once again, I was not pinching myself. I was just like, man, we need to learn. We can learn from this. Um, what was was the situation about elevator pitches and and how you talk about that? You know, sure, it's great to have elevator pitches and as long as there's plural. But the way in which you pitch to 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 one company is not going to be the same that you're going to pitch to another. And, and it really has nothing to do with you as much as it does to do with what their needs are. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. So I'm going to change everyone's business here for just a moment. I know you're, you're, you're in the freight space, but now you're going to move to the copier space. And today's a very, very exciting day because your company, after years of research and development, has the first copier on the planet that can print 50 shades of gray. Isn't that awesome? The only one on the planet that can print 50 shades of gray. And tomorrow you have a meeting with the CFO to talk about this new copier. How many of you would be talking about the 50 shades of gray with this CFO? I hope none of you. For so many reasons, but most importantly, CFOs don't care about colors, shades, and hues. What do they care about? Financial impact on the business. Tomorrow afternoon, you have a meeting with the head of marketing. Doesn't care about the financial impact. Does care about color, shades, hues, the overall performance of it. The next day, you have a meeting with IT. Doesn't care about financial impact. Also doesn't care about color, shades, and hues. Cares about reliability. Cares about security. Cares about integration. Those are three completely different conversations, but what you're selling is the same. That box, that copier hasn't changed. But based on who you're interacting with, we need to change our approach. And so to, you, to your question, we need to be much more mindful of the various what I call decision influencers, the people that are involved in the decision-making process, and make sure we're communicating in a way that's meaningful to them. Not about us, about them. What do they care about? What's their language? What's their vernacular? And communicate in a way that they go, wow, that's meaningful to me. Right. So if I went into the CFO and I talked about how this can print so fast in these wonderful hues and shades of gray, I'd be walked out of the room. CFO doesn't care about that. And if I was talking to the, the IT manager about the return on investment, again, he'd be rolling his eyes going, why are you even sitting here? So having alignment with your messaging is so important. So take a step back and think of that spectrum of folks that are involved in the decision making process and understand what their language is, their challenges are, and connect that with your differentiators and talk about the ones that are really going to be meaningful to them, as opposed to just having one can pitch and everybody gets to hear. Exactly. You know, I think another example you used in, in the book that I really liked was the Coke versus Pepsi and, and how uh, Pepsi was able to disrupt a decades long relationship that they had, that Coke had with United Airlines. And, and the the artificial example you used was, oh, the, the Pepsi rep sent 
did the the blind taste test to the to the CEO of United Airlines, and oh, lo and behold, he loved the Pepsi more than the Coke. When in reality, this Pepsi individual recognized the situation that United was in. It was 2002, right after. 9-11, where people were traveling less and um, revenues were way down for them and costs were soaring. And Pepsi said, hey, you know, I know that, you know, I recognize that people probably don't care that much about whether they're drinking Coke or Pepsi on your flights. That's not why they choose to fly United. However, for you, United, you are very concerned about revenues right now. And I can come up with a revenue share program wherein you will see increased revenues by way of partnering with us rather than what you're doing with Coke. Now you've answered a need that this person had that maybe you didn't know they had, maybe you did the research and figured it out, but I think it starts by asking questions or, or doing the research, whatever it is. All of that translates to not just coming in with your one canned pitch. 100% right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting, uh, you know, I think in our industry, there's so much, there's, there's not enough differentiation. Right. And, and as a result, you're seeing companies get creative in terms of how they market. And in one of the things that I also read in your book was the um, and I'm going to ask you to explain it because I won't be able to explain it as well as you. But um, when 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 car companies were struggling with getting people to buy uh, previously owned vehicles and, and can you elaborate on what these companies did to kind of change the dynamics so people were more interested? Yeah, so it was in the 1990s, luxury car companies like Lexus and Mercedes changed their business model. They'd always sold cars and they shifted to leasing them. Now, when you sell a car, you sell it once it goes away forever. But when you lease one, you lease at a particular price point, then it comes back like a boomerang, and then you have to sell it at a particular price point. So they went forward with this leasing problem. And they very quickly discovered they had a major business problem, like big. What was it? These cars would come off lease and they weren't able to sell these vehicles at the prices that they wanted. So now, instead of being in the black, they were in the red on these transactions. And the reason for that is they were selling these cars and we had a word to describe them, which is used cars. And if you think of the image you get in your head when you hear used cars, you think jalopy, right? This is the car you buy for your teenager when they first get a driver's license because you know it's going to get banged up. And these executives say, oh, I appreciate that. But that's not what these cars are. They have very few miles on them. They're in great shape. And it's still, it's a Lexus, it's a Mercedes. We want to reach a different caliber buyer. We want to reach those who have the financial wherewithal to buy a new car. Maybe not a new Lexus or a new Mercedes, but a new vehicle. And we all know what they did. They came up with the expression certified pre-owned to describe these cars, right? They had to put certified on it because we didn't believe someone else's butt was in that seat prior to ours. And that strategy works so well. You can go into Google and read the countless studies that have been done. But here's the real test. Today, every car manufacturer, Honda, Hyundai, Mazda, they all have new cars and certified pre-owned. And so they changed the overall perception that we had of these same used cars by changing the positioning. So you're telling me a used car and a certified pre-owned car are the same thing? Pretty much. And and because they changed the title from used to certified pre-owned, all of a sudden people were willing to buy it. They created panache around it. So in our industry, freight brokers have been around since the 80s, early 80s, when the industry was deregulated. Like I said, there's 18,000 of them. 
Um, they've developed a bad name for themselves. We, and, and I don't mean Molo, but I mean the industry has developed a bad name for for, for what a freight brokerage is, largely because um, they, they generally can't be trusted. Like one of the largest issues that a shipper faces is they ask a broker to make commitments and then execute those commitments. And over time, the broker stops doing that if it's not profitable for them in the short-term environment. And as a result, there's a lack of trust. So when you call and say, hey, I'm a freight broker, uh, a shipper is immediately turned off kind of like a used car. So what we've actually seen happen in our industry is some companies have pivoted, uh, right or wrong, into saying, hey, we're not a freight broker, we're a digital freight broker. And, and this is a hotly contested topic because uh, in, in some cases, they're claiming to be different because they're using more technology and trying to leverage more automation. But the reality of the situation is there are companies that are traditional freight brokers that are using as much or more of the same digitization and automation through technology. And it's funny to me, though, because it's working or it has worked historically to the point where shippers, um, I've, I've, I'm aware of some large shippers that have even set aside a budget specific to digital freight brokers. And that's interesting to me because what it suggests is that your theory works, whether or not they're any different. They've positioned themselves differently, and it's a success. Even if we think that it's wrong to claim to be one thing different, if you're if you're claiming to be different but you're not actually, is that wrong, or is it okay if it still gets the shipper what they're looking for? Yeah. Well, the client will figure that out, right? Yeah. If it's nothing but words, it's lip so, service. They're going to quickly figure that out. So that's actually what I think we've seen in our industry because the rise of the digital freight broker happened. You know, they they all were founded in fifteen and sixteen. And our industry goes in cycles. And during the the hot cycles, the the times when freight is really difficult to move, that last time that happened was in 17 and 18. And that's when these digital freight brokers, they became the answer. These shippers went to them thinking, hey, these guys are, are the answer for me because the, I can't trust the traditional freight broker. But what we saw in 2020, this, the next hot market as the pandemic kind of hit and every kind of all the chaos was happening was... Uh, it was lip service, and 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 they were proven to be no different in terms of their ability to execute and, and answer the questions that customers needed, the problems that they needed solved. Um, so, you know, I think it's interesting. I think the tie to what you're suggesting is very true. But at the end of the day, positioning matters to get you in the door. It's it's the ability to follow through on the commitments you make and execute. That's what keeps your customer in the door, right? So, so you know, I think that's interesting. You know, Andrew, if I was if I was consulting with your company based on what you shared with me today, we'd have a long conversation to figure out a name other than broker. You've told me broker is a negative name. I, I thought you were gonna go a different path with the story. When you started with the digital, digital freight, I thought they were gonna have a different name, but I would find another expression to describe it. A, a freight executor. Is that what I should start calling my company? Because that's at the end of the day, what shippers are most concerned about. The biggest problem that shippers have is they go out to bid their business, they do an RFP, and they commit prices to, to carriers and brokers. And then if the market is no longer in the broker's favor, they stop committing. So it's really when the shipper needs you most, when they're in the most trouble, that they go to the brokers and the brokers are like, ah, I know I said I would do this four months ago, but it's no longer in my best interest to do that. So you're so, suggest, go ahead. Uh, yeah, so I, I wouldn't suggest that in the next four seconds, we're going to be able to figure out what it should be. But I would suggest that you have your management team in a room and say, we know that there is a negative connotation, use cars for the expression broker. We need to come up with a different way to describe who we are. And then when someone says, well, what is that? We have a strong sound bite and variations thereof based on who we're speaking with. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. 
myself personally. So I position myself as a sales manager and strategist. There are sales trainers out there. There are sales consultants out there. But there aren't many people that describe themselves in that way. So when someone hears that I'm a sales manager and strategist, Andrew, what's the first thing they say to me? I don't know. You tell what's me. that? Okay. But, what's oh, that? So what do you do? I was wondering that. <laughs> right? Thank you. Right? That's what I'm thinking. Thank you. Now I get an opportunity to talk about what I do and how I do it. So if you can come up with a creative way, let's get out of the broker conversation, come up with a creative way to describe what it is you do. And then when they say, well, really, what, what is that? Or, or tell me more that you've got hard-hitting sound bites for each of the decision influencers that differentiates your business right in that first instance, right in that first moment. Yes. How do you generate that interest right off the jump? How do you generate that, them willing to ask you the question of, well, how, how are you different? What makes you, what makes you special? So and you probably also read this in the book and you alluded earlier about words and expressions and, and, and how they can differentiate you. So I was an executive in the employment screening industry, background screening, drug tests. And guess how many customers I had? Two. Zero. Just like today, I have zero. If worst thing that we can ever be called in sales is a vendor, right? That's a four-letter word if you're called a vendor. It means they see no value in the relationship. It's all about price. Well, guess what? Vendors go with customers. Look it up in Webster's. A customer is described as someone who's buying stuff. So a vendor sells stuff. You look up in Spanish, vender is to sell. So a vendor sells stuff, a customer buys stuff. Look up the word client. A client is one who's under the protection of another. And so we were in the employment screening industry. <clears throat> one of the ways we differentiate ourselves is we said, by the way, we have no customers. How are you still in business if you have no customers? Because we have clients. We don't see the relationship as transactional. And it sounds hokey. But I'll tell you what, it works. It, it works. It, it sounds hokey, but as long as you can qualify it after the fact and explain it in a way that makes sense, then I'm in. I'm in. I support that. And, and you know, I think that's part of the reason that we want to push people to be unique. Uh, I used your word that you hate, but we, we can't use unique. You're not the only one in the world. But we want them to be different in terms of interesting. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's just about getting a conversation going that allows you to um, effectively communicate what what why you can solve the problems that these customers have or these clients or partners whatever word you want to use so exactly exactly listen lee i think we're coming up on time here so i i won't take it any longer but i appreciate you know the 20 minutes or so that we have with you today uh thanks for sharing your insights and you know if anybody's wanting to learn more this is his book sales differentiation I now get a royalty off all purchases after today thank you so much and andrew there's a new one coming out Sell different builds off a sales differentiation and that hits the shelves in September. Sounds great. Well, awesome. thanks for coming out and uh, Andrew, thank you. Have a good one.